Good morning, church. Back when we were getting ready to restart our Wednesday night Bible classes, the elders asked that we might study the book of James. And based on some of the very positive comments that I have heard since, that has been a, a very appropriate and uh, profitable study for several members of the congregation. And so I appreciate their, their wisdom in requesting that we study the book of James. As whenever I have the opportunity to preach a, or to teach a particular book, I also like to preach an occasional sermon on that same book as well, which is exactly what I intend to do this morning. The lesson's title this morning is the last sentence of James chapter 2 and verse 13 indeed, which says very briefly in four short words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And as we're going to see this morning, that is one of the most central, all-important, and all-encompassing sentences in the entire epistle of the book of James. I'm going to do something with the lesson that I don't get the opportunity to do in a Bible class when we go verse by verse, and that is to give a brief overview, and I'd like to start with that this morning. You know, you can tell a lot about what was going on in those first century congregations of the Lord's Church by looking at what God led his divinely inspired writers to write about. These writers wrote about certain issues. They wrote to correct certain issues that existed within these congregations and these groups. For example, as we study through, or as you have read through the first chapter of the book of James, you would notice that apparently many to whom James was writing were struggling with trials. They were struggling with temptations. Probably a lot of those trials and temptations caused by the dispersion from their homes in Jerusalem because of the fact that they were Christians. And as we read through that first chapter, we would also note that some of their statuses, whether economic, social, etc., had changed dramatically. And we see that again in about verse 9 through 12, somewhere in there. And as a result of their change of status, they were being tried and tempted in ways that they hadn't really been tried and tempted before. And so, James instructs them how to deal with those situations, how to deal with those situations and overcome them. Tells them about temptation and the process and how it works. And then, in the end of chapter 1, he goes on to tell them basically that what they needed to do was just keep on doing what God said in his word. Keep on doing what God said Basically the same thing that Jesus had told them in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 when he told them to seek first the kingdom of God and all those other things be taken care of. James tells them, do what the word says. Tells them what pure and undefiled religion is. As we move on to James chapter 2, we would see that there were some of those to whom he was writing who were guilty of 
showing the sin of partiality. They were, as you read down through that and you try to, to figure out there what was going on that James was addressing, it would be an obvious conclusion that some of them were probably more focused upon what they could physically and personally gain by catering to the rich than they were what they could spiritually and personally gain by giving to the poor. We move on to chapter 3. We would notice from verses 1 through 12 that it's pretty obvious that there were some to whom James was writing who were really bad-mouthing each other, probably even cursing one another on occasion. Verse 9, perhaps in the form of gossip or slander or a bunch of other falsehoods, all of which James says in verse 8 is deadly poison to those who do so. James then moves on in chapter 3, continues to echo his half-brother Jesus' teachings on personal defilement that Jesus had taught in Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, and Mark 7, verses 22 through 23. James echoes that when he lets Christians know that what comes out of their mouth is what is lodged in their hearts and what they needed to do to fix the problem. We move on to James chapter 4 and we learn that sadly, awfully, there were actually those Christians who were warring and fighting in the, in the audience to whom James was writing and he goes on to tell them that actually signaled a lack of submission to God. We see all of this in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And then he goes back in James 4 to the prominent theme of the previous chapter, how they were so sinfully speaking evil of and judging one another, actually echoing very much what Paul wrote in Romans 14, 1 through 12. And he told them how they needed to turn and say and do good instead because they didn't know when their last chance would be to turn around and say and do good. Verses 11 through 17 of chapter 4. Finally, in James chapter 5, he wraps up by continuing to really drive home this point of how they, they desperately needed to stop focusing on themselves and start treating one another fairly and righteously. That's in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He continued to drive home the point that they needed to be patient as Christians in general and certainly with one another in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. He goes on in James 5 to tell them how they desperately needed to not grumble against one another but instead be patient and compassionate and merciful like God unless they wanted to be condemned by God, verses 9 through 11 of James 5. Then he finally wraps up his epistle by saying that they needed to pray together. They needed to pray for one another. They needed to sing and pray and work and worship together, confessing their sins to and praying for one another in order to make sure that they all got to heaven together. That is in verses 12 through 20 of James 5. And so as we, as we look at what we said in all of those, how do you get, if you're James, how do you get a people who are doing all of those things we just talked about, how do you get them to that point where they're praying, working, worshiping together, 
making sure they all get to heaven together, as, as it says in, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. How do you do that? How do you ensure, if you are James, that that happens? How do you accomplish all that with this group of people? This group of people to whom James is writing, who are locked in a daily life and death struggle with the devil. They're constantly wrestling and battling to overcome temptation. Chapter 1, verse 12. Wrath. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. They're battling to overcome filthiness, wickedness, and self-deception. James 1, 21 through 26. They're wrestling to overcome sinful partiality, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. They're wrestling to overcome a lack of good works or visible expressions of their love for one another, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. They're wrestling to overcome bitterness and cursing and speaking evil of and judging and grumbling against one another. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 4, 11 and 12, and chapter 5 and verse 9. They're warring and fighting and envying and they're jealous. They have a lack of godly humility, chapter 4, 1 through 10. They're lacking fairness, patience, and compassion for their brethren, chapter 5. How on earth do you overcome all of that and get it back to where it needs to be? We look at all that and we say, man, Look at, look at the diversity of struggles and issues they got there. And you know what James says? By the wisdom and inspiration of God, James says, the answer to question is really simple. It's a really easy answer. James says the answer is mercy. Mercy. That's the answer. Mercy. James wrote by divine inspiration of God. James is therefore absolutely correct. James says the answer is mercy. Let me show you how this works. You know those eight categories that I just summed up and mentioned? Let's take a look at those again. Is mercy the answer to dealing with temptation? Yes. Mercy is the answer to dealing with temptation. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tells us that. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was tempted. It's talking about temptation. He never sinned, but he was tempted in all things as we are. So the implication from Hebrews 4 is, so when we struggle with temptation, we need to go to the throne of grace to find what? Mercy. Mercy is the answer to alleviating temptation or dealing with it. Is mercy the answer to eradicating wrath? Yes, it is. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says it is. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Here we go. And were by nature children of wrath. There's the wrath. 
just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love when, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Listen, we were children of wrath, but that was eradicated by God's mercy. Mercy eradicates wrath. The third one I mentioned was filthiness, wickedness, and self-deception. Is mercy the answer, the solution to doing away with filthiness, wickedness, and self-deception? Is mercy, yeah, mercy's the answer for that too. Let me give you a scripture reference. Let's actually turn there in your Bibles because I didn't type this one out. Turn with me to 1 Timothy in your Bibles. Mercy is the solution to doing away with filthiness, wickedness, and self-deception. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul was a man who caused Christians to blaspheme or tried. He arrested them. He was responsible for putting some to death. He was deceived. And look what he says. He says in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Some versions may say violent man. He said, I was rotten to the core, if I may paraphrase. What's the cure for that rottenness, Paul? But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, Paul says, was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Your version may say foremost. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. Is mercy the answer to evil? Yes, yes. Is mercy the cure for partiality? Yes. Matthew 5, 43 through 47, Romans 2, 1 through 11, James 2, 1 through 13. Mercy is the cure for partiality. It's exactly what James is addressing in James chapter 2. Is mercy the remedy for a lack of good works or a lack of visible expressions of our love for one another? Is, is mercy the cure for that? Yeah. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. God sent Jesus in his mercy. He saved us to be a people zealous for good works. Mercy cures a lack of love or a lack of expressions of love or a lack of good works. Is mercy likewise the answer to all bitterness, cursing, speaking evil of, and grumbling against one another? Is mercy the answer to warring, fighting, envy, and judging one another? Is mercy the answer to a lack of fairness, a lack of patience, and a lack of compassion for one another? Yes, yes, and yes. James chapters 3, 4, and 5. Yes, mercy's the answer. Mercy's the answer to cure all of those problems those people had that James was writing to. I believe this is probably one reason why James, led by the Spirit of God, in response to all of the unrest and the unrighteousness that he's writing to address, sums it all up in our centerpiece text of this morning's sermon, which says that mercy is the one-size-fits-all, cure-all, for-all 
that they were experiencing. Turn to me in your Bibles to that centerpiece text, James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I have told many of you who've been here for Bible classes since I got here that in the Sermon on the Mount, everything prior to Matthew 5, 20, where he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, that everything prior to it's leading up to that, and everything after it is an illustration of it. I want you to kind of think this morning in James, of James 2, verses 12 and 13, is, is sort of the same thing. Because again, all their problems they were dealing with, and we've been through this, that's why I spent so much time with it at the beginning of the lesson, was mercy. Mercy was the answer to it all. He says, in the middle of this discussion of showing the sin of partiality, would help if I was in James, probably. In James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, So speak, I'll stop right there, I want to show you how all-encompassing these two verses are. So speak. Speak. How much of James is written about what we say? A whole bunch. Let me give you the references. Chapter 1 and verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Chapter 3, 2 through 12. Chapter 4, 11 through 16. Chapter 5 and verse 9. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. You think there's a lot? You think when he says, so speak, and starts this off, it has got to do with everything he's talking about in all of this? Yes. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2, so speak, and so do. You know how much doing is listed in the book of James? About everything that speak doesn't cover. Pretty much the rest of the book. So speak, and so do. Talking about this in the whole book as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs, beats judgment. See. Not only is a Christian's mercy as given to others in both word and deed, the answer to all such problems as they were experiencing, which we have gone over, but in addition, one of the greatest and most powerful liberties, liberties, liberties that we enjoy as New Testament Christians, check this out, is that we each get to personally give to God Almighty the exact standard of mercy that we want to be judged with come Judgment Day. That is a liberty that we have. We get to express to God how much mercy we want on Judgment Day. We get to tell Him exactly. And you know what that measure is? exactly the amount of mercy that we give to others. That's a liberty that we have that God allows us. The exact same standard and measure of mercy which we give out to our brethren here on a daily basis 
is what we tell God we want to be measured with on Judgment Day. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew chapter 18, verses 22 through 35. And especially Luke 6, 27 through 38. Brethren, we certainly want to give all the mercy we can give if we want to get all the mercy we can get the day we come before Christ, before God for judgment. Say it one more time. One of the liberties God has given us is that we get to give him the exact measure we want used on us. And that is the exact measure that we use on others. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Perhaps there is no greater or more powerful illustration of this principle in Jesus' earthly ministry than one that doesn't really contain the word mercy anywhere in the account, and yet it is one of the most stunning expressions of this kind of mercy triumphing over judgment that Jesus encountered during his whole earthly ministry. Because this text and this account we're about to talk about explains exactly how this whole principle works. It explains how it triumphs over even the harshest of judgments, mercy. Turn to me in your Bibles to that very account in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you want to see it live and in person, you want to see it in the ministry of Jesus as powerfully as it is explained anywhere else, here it is. John chapter 8, let us begin in verse 2. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So you've got this crowd around. You've got this, this mass of people around, and, and Jesus is in the temple, and, and he's teaching them. And suddenly, his teaching is interrupted. Scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman. I would imagine probably it's a little stronger than just broader barged in and threw her down in front of him probably is a lot closer to what, a lot better translation to what happened. Scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in a very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something which to accuse him. Don't miss the fact of who brought her in. These were highly religious people. These were highly religious people who prided themselves, prided themselves on keeping the law of Moses. They prided themselves on keeping that law which she had broken. They weren't really interested in her guilt. 
They weren't really interested in her innocence. They weren't really interested in the unnecessary pain that they were bringing up on her and putting her through. Remember, there's a crowd around. I mean, how would you feel? I mean, in they come barging in and, and, and probably throw her down. I don't imagine they were too awfully tender with her and, and cast her down and said, hey, the law says stone her. What do you say? I mean, they're out to get Jesus. They're not trying to win awards for being polite. And so this woman is shamed in front of this entire group of disciples. They're just using her to get Jesus. So the rest of verse 6, it says, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. Can, can, you, see the, can you see this? Then they come, what do you say? What do you? And Jesus just, he's down, he just starts writing on the ground. And they continue. I'd like to know how long this barrage went on. The Bible doesn't tell us, okay? But if you can see him down there, and you can see these people with this woman, and they're, they're how, you know what the law says, and, and you can see this guy. I don't know how long it went on. I don't know if it went on long at all. In my mind, I, I, I see these guys just keep, I mean, they're not just standing and saying, well, he'll get up in a minute. He'll be okay. He'll answer in a minute. They, they, they don't strike me as that type, but that's just opinion. Whatever yours is is fine. So when they continued asking him, so apparently it went on for a little bit. They continued, hey, she's, you know. They continued asking him, he raised himself up. And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, Let him throw a stone at her first. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. May I paraphrase? You've got your Bibles in front of you. May I paraphrase? When Jesus got up, he in effect said, okay, fair enough. That's right. That is exactly what the law says. So which one of you has never ever once broken the law? Go ahead and have at her, throw first. Hit her good. Can you, in your mind, picture what a suddenly stunned and complete eerie silence fell over that crowd? That crowd that had only mere moments ago been relentlessly demanding that he pass judgment on her. While he's down there, knelt down, and they continue to say, hey, what are you going to do with her? And the law says she should be stoned and all this. And Jesus gets up. There's this, there's this crowd there, and there's the audience, and there's all this sound. And then all of a sudden, Jesus said, okay, whichever one of you has never broken the law, go ahead and throw the first stone at her. Suppose that would have shut down things for a few minutes. You know when Jesus said to the water, peace, be still, and it became flat, calm immediately? I think this was like that orally. As they began to realize this crowd that had so relentlessly been demanding that he pass judgment on her realized that they had broken the same law. They'd just been reminded that they too had at some point. That must have been a weird silence, a, just, a, just a, a guilty, all-consuming, self-examining, guilt-ridden silence, perhaps only broken by one sound. 
You know what that sound might possibly have been that broke the silence? The thudding of now unneeded stones as they fell out of these men's hands and, hands and they slowly walked away one by one realizing that they were guilty too of having broken that same law at some point. And you know, just a quick aside, and I'll come right back to it, quick aside, you know, I've always wondered, how did these guys catch her in the act? Was it one of them maybe that set her up? Because we don't see the man involved here, which the man was gonna let the man off. I don't know if it was one of them or not that had set her up with the others just waiting to trap her. I don't know, but I've wondered. You know how people say sometime when, someday when I get to heaven, I'll ask the Lord? No, I won't, because I really won't care at that point. I'll just be happy to be in the presence of the Lord. But the bottom line is you wonder about these things. But they all, they all begin to understand they'd broken the same law at some point. It says in verse 9, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. They slowly, if they had stones, they dropped them. I don't know if they'd picked them up yet. I have no idea. But I do know this. I know that there was a process where they started walking out because they realized they weren't sinless either. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to a woman, where are your accusers? Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. Sin no more. Now listen. Jesus wasn't saying sin was okay. He told her not to sin anymore. Mercy is not okay with sin. Okay? Just so that we know. Mercy doesn't say keep on sinning. That's not what happened here at all. Another thing that we sometimes miss is that you know, it wasn't that she wasn't guilty of breaking the law. She certainly was. But so were her accusers. And, and that point that is most often overlooked in this whole account is this. Check this out. There was, of that whole crowd, the people that were there to listen to the lesson, Jesus who was given the lesson, the Pharisees and the scribes that come in that threw the woman down, of that whole crowd, there was only one person there who had never sinned. There was only one person there who was not nor would ever be guilty of breaking the law. Just one. And that very one who could have stoned them all, couldn't he? I mean, did Jesus have a right to stone them all for breaking the law under the old law? Because he was the only one without sin. He was the only one who had never sinned. The very one who had never sinned who had never broken the law and who had every right to judge all of them and find them all guilty and pass sentence on all of them and stone each and every one of them. Chose instead, show them mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He chose instead to give them all another chance to get it right. Now, please, please, please don't go home today, or if you are at home today, please don't say after the lesson, Doug said sin's okay. It's not what I said. Sin is not okay. Sin is never going to be okay. That's not the point here. 
Jesus told her not to do it again, but Jesus gave all of those men, those scribes, those Pharisees, he gave them another chance. He gave this woman another chance because mercy triumphs over judgment. And so that brings us to what I've decided today to call the five greatest blessings of being merciful or the five greatest benefits of being merciful. Number one, The greatest blessing or benefit that I'd like to bring up first of being merciful is that it makes us more like God. It makes us more like God. Luke 6 and verse 36 says, therefore be merciful just as your father also is merciful. God has always been merciful. Psalm 86 and verse 15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. God has always been and shall always be merciful. And ain't you glad God is merciful? Mercy triumphs over judgment. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, our God is even called the Father of mercies, God of all comfort. The second greatest blessing or the second great blessing or benefit of becoming and being more merciful that I'd like for us to take a look at for just a moment is that when we do show mercy, we give Jesus the desire of his heart. Think about that. When we are merciful, we give Jesus the desire of his heart. We're probably all familiar with Psalm 37 in verse 4, which says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We know that God will give us the desires of his heart. But how often do we really stop and think about, we can give Jesus what he most desires? How often do we stop and think about, I want to give Jesus what he desires in his heart? You know what he desires in his heart? He told us. He told us in Matthew chapter 9, please turn there. In Matthew chapter 9, it's actually a quote from Hosea 6 and verse 6. Matthew chapter 9, he tells us what he desires. We get to give Jesus what he desires. This quote from Hosea 6, 6 in Matthew 9, 10 through 13 is also seen in Matthew 12 and verse 7. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. It happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to him, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Did Jesus show mercy? Did Jesus live mercy? Jesus said, I desire mercy. We want to give Jesus what he desires, we show mercy. Not the kind or the lack of it that the Pharisees showed. Number three, the third great blessing of being a mercy giver is that being merciful is one of the weightier matters of the law, without which the rest of our worship is rendered rather powerless. Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 4. You know the text. 
Jesus said, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, love, justice, and mercy. It is a weightier matter of the law without which, the little checklist that we keep, well, I took my cracker and took my fruit of the vine and I put some money in the plate and I was there on Sunday and didn't, you know, that list we sometimes can, can Satan can tempt us to make it into a little checklist. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23 and 24, mercy is one of the weightier matters of the law. And if you don't keep that, then the rest of that stuff doesn't have as much power. The fourth great blessing or benefit of being merciful that I'd like to mention is that it shows our love for Jesus because we do it in obedience to his commandments. Simple as that. You love me, you'll obey my commandments. In Luke 10, 25 through 37, we have Jesus' account of what we typically call the, the parable of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? At the end of that story in Luke 10, in verses 36 and 7, Jesus asks this question. He says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? The respondent said, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. We obey God's command when we are merciful and give mercy. And when we obey his command, it shows we love him. That's the fourth blessing. The fifth blessing or benefit of being merciful servant of God that I'd like for us to reconsider is mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you know that even the greatest servant, even the greatest servants of God, like humble Onesiphorus, will still all need mercy come judgment day in order to overcome the judgment and enter into heaven. Did you know that? Even the greatest of servants. 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18, Paul there alludes to Onesimus. He talks what a, about what a wonderful man he is and how he's helped Paul and, and he, just, he, he just wants mercy for him on that day. Even the greatest of servants need mercy. You know, one of God's standards has always been, it's nothing new, the more you give, the more you get, right? We know that financially, right? God says, Malachi 3, open up the, the window, I'll open up the windows of heaven, try it out, give me terrible paraphrase. You know the text. God's pro, God's process or formula or standard has always been the more we give the more we receive that's why proverbs eleven seventeen says the merciful man does good for his own soul why because the more we give the more god gives us in matthew 5 7 jesus said blessed blessed are the merciful for they it's only promised to them they shall receive mercy. And as I thought about this text in James 2 and verse 13 that, that kind of pulls it all together and would have solved so many of their problems that he's writing to address, I, I got to thinking, well, what do some, some of the great commentators have to say about this? Great men and commentators of times past, what do they have to say? Let me, let me read you a little bit. Brother Guy N. Woods, in his Gospel Advocate Commentary on James, says this on chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, It is the merciful who shall obtain mercy, Matthew 5, 7. Those who have been merciless 
need not expect mercy when they themselves need it the most. To be forgiven, we must forgive others. To avoid condemnation, we must not exercise adverse judgment towards others. Then he brings up Matthew 18, 23 and following. He says, the debtor forgiven of his great and hopeless debt need not expect God at the last day to lift his own tremendous obligation if he will not mark off an insignificant debt of sin owed him by one of his brothers. Matthew 18, 23 through 25. I would add that Matthew 18 and verse 35 sums that whole story up and says pretty much the same thing. Brother Woods goes on to say this principle the text teaches with great clarity. Indeed, the Greek is more emphatic than the English translation, signifying, for the judgment will be merciless to him that worketh no mercy. Merciless. He goes on to say, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Some translations have glorieth, rejoices, or exalts over judgment, and the like. All of which point to the fact that where mercy can express itself, it always transcends judgment. Mercy cancels out judgment or condemnation. Those who have been merciful may properly exult in the mercy which they shall receive at the judgment. None of us can hope to stand before God on our own merit. We all are in need of the divine mercy, but to enjoy it ourselves, we must show it to others. Mercilessness in us toward others will effectively close the door of mercy to us when we need it most. Brother James Burton Kaufman, he said the most wonderful truth revealed in all the word of God is that mercy stands higher than the law as the guiding principle of God's relationship with men. This was symbolized in the Old Testament by the mercy seat, which was placed above and on top of the Ark of the Covenant. However, in the New Testament, that the full impact of God's mercy comes to its glorious climax is in the crucifixion of the Son of God that men through him might have eternal life. The, 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 incredible overall all-encompassing beauty of the New Testament is that God's mercy came to us through Jesus Christ and we're gonna sing about that at the end aren't you grateful for the mercy of God it is only through the mercy of God I would add expressed and extended to us through the love and forgiveness of Christ only through God's mercy that we are able to enter the eternal heavenly aspect of the kingdom. Is that right? Likewise, it is only through the mercy of God, expressed and extended to us through the love and forgiveness of one another, that one is able to endure life in the earthly portion of that same kingdom. Everybody that's perfect, raise your hand. No takers? Of course not. That means if you're not perfect, that you're not perfect. That you've messed up here and there, despite your best efforts, but you messed up. And you flawed, you're flawed. So 
What would make life easier in the kingdom? The love and forgiveness of your brethren or the withholding of it? Isn't it good when people love us and forgive us? Makes life bearable, doesn't it? Finally, the pulpit commentary says in James 2, 1 through 13, or says of James 2, 1 through 13, this section is ended by the abrupt declaration, almost like a cry of triumph, mercy triumphs over judgment. I love the way the pulpit commentary puts it. He says, it's like, it's like James is, is ending this section by saying mercy triumphs over judgment, and he's just, he's, you know, standing up and going, yes, this is the victory. This morning, if you've never accepted the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, God's offered it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. If you've never accepted that gift of God's love and mercy and forgiveness and grace by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, why not? You do that so that you can escape judgment or condemnation on judgment day, right? Isn't that why you do it? Have your sins forgiven so you don't have to go through judgment? Because guess what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's where you accept the mercy of God to triumph over you being condemned and judged on judgment day. If you've never done that, you need to. Or if you've never extended, extended to others the full love and mercy and forgiveness of God, to another brother or sister who needs it in order for you to still escape that same condemnation on the day of judgment and you need the prayers to do that. If we can help you in any way on the subject of mercy to accept it or to be stronger in giving it, any way we can help, please come in a moment when we stand and sing because mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't just sing the song, watch the word mercy. If you have a need, please come right now.